Hi, I'm Dr. Dana Steiner, Director of Access Global at AJC. If you're alarmed by rising anti-Semitism, like me, there is something you can do. You can take action right now by supporting AJC. Every day, AJC is taking bold steps to tackle anti-Jewish hate wherever and whenever it rears its ugly head. I'm proud to work with incredible young professionals around the globe who are committed to ensuring our world is safer and more secure for Jews and our partners. One of the initiatives I'm most excited about is our work in the Middle East, North Africa, the Gulf, and Israel, where we're working with young diplomats, government officials, civil society leaders, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to shape a changing dynamic region. AJC empowers young professionals to lead the charge on reimagining the Middle East, and I could not be more proud to be a part of this vision. So now it's your turn. Step off the sidelines and make clear what you are willing to fight for. To support our work today, visit AJC.org backslash donate, or you can text AJC donate to 52886. That's AJC space donate to 52886. Every dollar you donate will be doubled. You can also find this information in our show notes. And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear Pashman. This week, People of the Pod took a field trip out of the studio to the New York Historical Society which until January 1st is featuring an exhibit titled Confronting Hate, 1937-1952, to about the groundbreaking campaign launched by American Jewish Committee in 1937 to combat increasing anti-Semitism and bigotry in the United States. The exhibition examines the history of the campaign through posters, comic books, newspaper advertisements, radio spots, and television cartoons that since 1952 have not been seen by the public. Here to walk me through the exhibit is Deborah Schmidt-Bach, Curator of Decorative Arts and Special Exhibitions at New York Historical Society, and Charlotte Bonelli, Director of American Jewish Committee's Archives and Records Center. Ladies, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So, first of all, before we begin walking through this exhibit, tell us how it all came about. When I first uh, became the archivist at the American Jewish Committee, I remember walking down the aisles and looking at all these boxes. And for some reason, my eye fell on some boxes on a bottom shelf labeled Rothschild Collection. And I was just so intrigued by the Rothschild name, I thought, what could possibly be in there? So I started to open them, and I'm pulling out comic books and cartoons and full-page newspaper ads calling for national unity in World War II and radio programs with uh, Judy Garland and James Cagney. And I was shocked. And I remember going back to my office, and I called Naomi Cohn, She had written the first volume history of AJC, and she had been my graduate school advisor. And I remember telling her, Dr. Cohn, you will just not believe what is sitting on my desk. And so here we have some of what was sitting on my desk is now, you know, been put together um, in this exhibit, thanks to Deborah and the New York Historical Society. 
And this had largely been really a forgotten and somewhat hidden chapter in AJC's history. So how many years did it take for this all to come together? I first became aware of this. It was uh, when I first came to the AJC about 20 years ago. And uh, along the way, when I had time, I researched it. Most of the material does not have the AJC name on it. I will say 95%, probably, Deborah, would you say at least? Yeah, I agree, at least 95%. So I didn't immediately understand uh, what the connection was to AJC. AJC produced all of this anti-bigotry material, and they gave it to a variety of allies, women's groups, veterans groups, uh, religious groups, labor unions and they produced it under their name. So AJC was always somewhat in the background of this, and that's probably part of the reason why it has remained something of a hidden history of the agency. And that was really by design, right? I mean, that was really to highlight the collaboration and the allies supporting these causes, correct? It was by design. I asked someone who, from that immediately after that period, Morris Fine, who had worked at the AJC for many years, and he said that they thought uh, putting it out with the AJC's name, it would smack of Jewish self-interest. You also have to realize that they wanted to reach a very, very broad audience. AJC is not that large at this time, so they're giving it to places like the vets, and they will produce it under their own name in their newspapers, and the women's organizations will you know, produce it under their name, and it'll go out to their membership, because you really needed a very wide range of allies to reach the broad American public. So let's start walking through the exhibit and looking at some of the highlights. And I want to first read the sign that's at the entrance. And it says, this exhibition includes objects and photographs whose language and imagery may not fit modern sensibilities and awareness. Please view them as historical artifacts reflecting their time and place. And I think that's worth noting as we go through. But they resonated at the time, right, Deborah? They absolutely resonated at the time, and the way we describe different groups at this point in time is very different from the way certain groups were described back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But I also will say that there are words that are also very prescient and contemporary, like the term ally. So if you look at the AJC's early correspondence about the establishment of this campaign, the AJC talks about enlisting many different allies to work on this campaign with them. And they use that word ally, which is a word that we hear a lot now. So tell us what we're looking at here in this first glass case to the left when you first walk into the gallery. So we start the exhibition by examining what was going on in New York and in the United States and the circumstances that spurred AJC to inaugurate this campaign in the first place. and. One of the things that the campaign material shows us very clearly is that anti-Semitism was at a peak in the 1930s, unfortunately. As we all know, when we're in the midst of a time of crisis, anti-Semitism does rear its head often. So in the wake of the Depression, legislation that limited the numbers of immigrants from Eastern Europe who could come into the United States, who are primarily um, many of the Jewish migrants were from that area. Issues like elite colleges limiting the numbers of Jews who could attend those schools, as well as a rise in white supremacist groups. All of those forces conspired to add and incite anti-Semitism. Among the material that I found very shocking when I first encountered it 
were some of the newspapers and magazines published by white supremacist groups who were essentially blaming Jews for the ills of society. So what you're seeing here are only three examples of many, but probably the most poisonous of all is this magazine called The White Knight, published by the Order of the White Camellia. And they actually took on the idea that Roosevelt's New Deal was actually too infused with Jews, because Roosevelt had appointed more Jews to his cabinet and to important positions than any other president previously. So this magazine features a cover with a picture of a fire and then the words, the Jew deal issue. And so it's just a really blatant example of the kinds of ways that anti-Semitic ideas were manipulated and presented to the American public. I mean, above the case, we're also showing photographs of some of the anti-Semitic meetings and rallies that were happening in New York. So one photograph shows one of many rallies, anti-Semitic rallies held at Madison Square Garden where it's thousands <laughs> of people attended. The picture below it shows a meeting, we believe, on Long Island. And one of the things that I find most shocking about this photograph is that behind the speaker is an American flag, a portrait of George Washington, and the Nazi flag. Really just very, very shocking associations. I'm just kind of stepping over to a glass case here that has a text that says, conquest by propaganda today. You know, the great strategies of conquest used to be military. Today, a new strategy is being used to gnaw at the vitals of a nation until only a hollow shell remains to be crushed by force of arms. And of course, it's talking about propaganda as a weapon. And it's eerie because we talk a lot today about propaganda being spread on social media, misinformation, and how that is being used to undermine democracy, much like those packets of material that are photographed there that were coming through customs and being distributed, right? Yes, absolutely. And these two booklets, some of the earliest published um, under Richard Rothschild for the campaign, really lay out the ways in which the Nazis were using their propaganda in the United States to attempt to divide Americans and thus hopefully conquer the United States. When you have this enormous rise in anti-Semitism in the, in the late 30s, the American Jewish community realizes that they cannot rely on former tactics of legislation or filing a Supreme Court brief or doing a study. And they know that they have to go into the world of mass media, but they have absolutely no experience in this world. So tell us why Richard Rothschild was the right soldier uh, to fight this, this new weapon of propaganda. Richard Rothschild, he was a very unusual uh, amalgam of highbrow intellect and marketing savvy. He realizes that you have to bring this message to the American public many, many times, so you'll have many formats for this material, comic books, cartoons, radio programs, newspaper ads, and articles. And he also realizes that you need many, many allies, a range of allies. So you'll have allies from the veterans of foreign wars who are somewhat conservative, and then he will go to liberal groups. He wants to leave no one out. He wants everyone involved, and he wants to get his message out there again and again. Central to his message is the fact that anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, but it is a problem for all Americans because it tears at the fabric of society like any other bigotry. 
And so certainly at the beginning of the war, they will hammer away, and you'll see this in the material, that Americans cannot win this war if they are divided against each other, Christian against Jew, divided along racial lines or ethnic lines, that you have to be one unitary force. So people are seeing this in, in magazines, newspaper ads, but they're also hearing it. And we're, I want to keep walking past this old-timey radio here and give a listen to some of the recordings that people were listening to. Nephews, nieces, too, mothers and daddies, how are you? This is Uncle Don, all set to go with a meeting on the radio. You know, boys and girls, we're all Americans. I'm an American, and you're an American, and your mothers and daddies are Americans, and so are all the boys and girls you play with, and who are your friends? Maybe you know a boy or girl who is different from you. I mean, whose skin is a different color, black or brown or yellow. And maybe you know boys and girls who don't go to the same church as you, or whose daddies and mothers speak a different language than your mothers and daddies. Well, it's a wonderful thing to know that all these boys and girls are the same. They're all Americans. And that's why I have a surprise for you. Yep, a real surprise. I'm going to call it my All-Americans Contest. That contest was, of course, created by Milton Krentz, AJC's director of radio. Can you tell us more about Krentz and that campaign? He comes here in 37. He establishes the department. It is brand new. For all of the success in print media, Rothschild himself admitted that AJC will be most effective in the world of radio. Just a word about Milton Krentz. When they decide to establish a radio department, Benjamin Butenweiser, an AJC board member, calls NBC Radio, and he asks, do you have any young Jewish fellows there? We want to start a radio department. Well, they had one, and his name was Milton Krentz. Now, the only problem was that he was in the accounting department. He had no radio experience, only from NYU, where he had done a little radio work. And this is really the thinnest of resumes. But they decide to take a chance on him. And he came up with this idea for Uncle Don's All-Americans Contest, where kids are going to write in and say why it's grand to be an American. And Milton, of course, in his intro, had written why he thought it was grand to be an American. And as you heard in the program, it says, maybe you know a boy or girl who goes to a different church than you or who is a different color than you. Well, isn't it grand to know that we're all Americans? So this was his very first program. It was very, very successful. They got thousands of letters coming into the studio, and the winning essay got tickets to a Broadway show. So it really was a way to reach young people. One of the remarkable things about this collection is that Rothschild and Krentz and Ethel Phillips, who was also involved in the campaign, really focused on using new technologies. And uh, in the 1930s, the electronic, the new electronic media of the day, or the relatively new electronic media of the day, was radio. Let's listen to another radio spot, Dear Adolf. Dear Adolf, a letter to Hitler. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the Council for Democracy, presents Dear Adolf, 
A series of six narrative letters written each week by Stephen Vincent Benet, one of the nation's greatest writers. These broadcasts are based upon actual letters written to Hitler by Americans. Today's program, the fifth of the series, presents the well-known screen actor William Holden, who is now a private in the United States Army Signal Corps at the Photographic Center, Astoria, Long Island. Private Holden will relate the views of an American soldier as he addresses a letter to Hitler. Dear Adolf, this is me, one American soldier. My dog tag numbers in the millions. My draft number came out of the hat in every state in the Union. I'm from Janesville and Little Rock, Monroe City and Nashua. I'm from Blue Eye, Missouri and the sidewalks of New York. I'm from the Green Mountains and the Big Sky Hooten Plains, from the roll of the prairie and the rocks of Marblehead, from the little towns where a dog can go to sleep in the middle of Main Street, and the nickel-plated suburbs and the cities that stick their skyscrapers into the sky. I used to be a carpenter and a school teacher, a soda jerker and a mechanic. I used to be a hacky and a farmhand, a leg man and a bookkeeper, the son of a guy with money and the son of a guy with none. But I'm a soldier now, four and one-half million of us by the end of this year. Listen to the roll call. Adamowski, Adams, Anderson, Bailey, Bertillo, Brown. That's my outfit. That's us, the biggest and best-trained army ever raised on American soil. Milton had this idea where different factions of the American public, housewives, farmers, laborers, that there would be a letter representing each group, a letter to Hitler. And it would basically tell them off uh, why American values were superior and why we would inevitably win the war. So he has this idea for this program, but then he needs someone to write the letters. So he's not gonna have just anyone write these letters. He settles on Stephen Vincent Benet, who was at that time a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Now he needs actors. Who's going to read these letters? He's not going to have just anyone read these letters. He goes and gets people like um, William Holden, James Cagney. This was an enormously successful program, let me just say. And they had planned to continue it. It went on for six or seven weeks, I believe. But Stephen Vincent Benet had an unexpected heart attack, and he died, so it came to an end. We talk about appealing to young people. I was really moved that there is a scholastic magazine here that talks about the story of scapegoating. It defines scapegoating for school kids and knowing what scholastic magazines look like that my kids bring home today. This is very different. This is serious subject matter. Tell me a little bit about the avenue to young people and these young adult or young children's publications. What you're seeing at the beginning of this area of the exhibition, and this area of the exhibition shows a variety of different comic books published under the campaign. First, you encounter a booklet called They Got the Blame, the story of scapegoats in history, written by a man named Kenneth Gould, who was the editor of Scholastic Magazine. So the material in this brochure was based on research that had been done by AJC, and it was distributed widely to high schools, I believe, and was very popular and successful. And Scholastic Magazine was published by an organization called the Parents Institute, 
which also published True Comics magazine and uh, Parents magazine. So the leap from the brochure to turn it into a comic book wasn't a huge one. Now, let me just say also, the use of comic books is another example of the AJC using new media and new technologies to reach the widest audiences possible. Um, it, in 1937, um, Superman had just been launched. First very important superhero comic book. It was extremely successful. It caught fire right away to the point where after the beginning of World War II, the United States Army and Navy were using comic books to train soldiers, to teach them about hygiene. So comic books are an ideal media for the AJC because they're succinct, they're very colorful, they can be entertaining, and the prose are also fairly easy to understand. They're very limited. So comic books can be read by people who have a variety of literary abilities. And that's in part how the comic books began. What we're showing in the exhibition is again, just a, a small number of the comic books that were published under the campaign. But we're showing comic books that look at people who were soldier workers, so Americans who were not in the military and fighting on the ground, but people who were working in factories and producing different kinds of goods and materials that were used for the war efforts. Another comic book that looks at the heroism of the Tuskegee Airmen. And we also have two comic books written in Portuguese and in Spanish. So the comic books were distributed through embassies in South and Central America. And part of the reasoning behind that was that, again, the South American audiences needed to also be informed that Nazism was a threat to them as well. Okay, so let's turn back to the use of radio. This was a very powerful live broadcast from Germany. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Jewish Committee, brings you now a special broadcast of historic significance, with the first Jewish religious service broadcast from Germany since the advent of Hitler. It's this service is being held in an open field underneath a blue sunlit sky. To hear the sound of artillery guns, because the front line is not far from where we are. Can you tell us a little bit about what is really the backdrop or the soundtrack of this exhibit that's playing and replaying as people are walking through? After the D-Day invasion, Milton Krantz is in his office, and I know this from his oral history, and I just want to tell your listeners that the oral history for Milton Krantz, Richard Rothschild, and Ethel Phillips are online, and it really gave us so much information to pull this together and to hear this in their own words. In this video about the broadcast, we redid it and we put in a clip from Milton Krentz. It was Deborah's suggestion, and I think it really adds something to it. And it is up on YouTube now, broadcasting from the battlefield. 
But very briefly, Krenz is reading the newspapers and he understands that the Allies will soon be going into Germany. So he comes up with this idea for a Jewish broadcast from Germany, the first city to fall, and he's looking at the map and he understands that Aachen will be the first German city to fall. And he was correct, and the fighting was very, very fierce there. But they decided with NBC that they would have this religious broadcast from the battlefield. The morning of it, they still did not know if they would be able to do it because of the fighting, but eventually they do it. And the response in the U.S. was just, it was just enormous. The letters came pouring in. But it was broadcast again and again, and you have to understand that this broadcast is really a, it's an announcement that the end is finally near after a war that has caused so much destruction, so much death, that finally there will be an end, and that, you know, the Jewish people will survive. Let me just say one other thing about this to understand the impact. The Nazis had said that the Jews were cowardly, that they don't fight. And here you have a broadcast on German soil. And these men have been through some of the worst battles of the war, Omaha Beach, the cantor who led it, Max Fuchs, um, Semlo. And now they're on German soil singing these Jewish prayers. And you have to keep that in mind, I think, to understand the tremendous reaction this had here at home. And again, it's also an example of AJC's harnessing use of new technologies or available technologies from the period the fact that a radio broadcast could be broadcast across the world was um, not something that was commonly done. But the other thing is the movie that we have in the exhibition that plays ongoingly on a loop was created by AJC, but it inserts images, photographs that were taken that day by the US Signal Corps. So they were on the ground as well observing this service. That also gives us the ability to see some of the images from that very important service from Aachen in 1944. It's really quite moving. And you know, you mentioned Jewish heroism and the myth of cowardice that was circulating. That was also countered by the comic books, right? I mean, they were creating Jewish comic book heroes. Absolutely. I mean, that was countered by the advertisements that you see here, by the comic books. That really is a thread throughout the exhibition. Yeah. Okay. So let's keep walking here. And we see that in 1945, as the war is approaching an end, they broaden the campaign. And let's talk a little bit about how and why they needed to broaden the campaign post-war. Well, I think this really began before the war ended really as early as 1943 or 1944. And I think in the back of Rothschild and his team's minds was that this campaign was really focusing on American bias in general. Again, that anti-Semitism was really a symptom of greater American ills and issues. So this is the second section of the exhibition and looks at some of the different cartoonists who were engaged in creating materials for the campaign. 
Among the first cartoons that visitors encounter are those created by a cartoonist named Eric Godal. So Eric Godal was a German-Jewish cartoonist who was active during the 1930s. Godal was very clear in his work about his feelings about Nazism and Hitler in the 30s. So after Hitler was elected as the Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Godal, not surprisingly, learned that he was a target of the Nazis and was going to be arrested. So he fled to Prague and two years later resettled in the United States. I think his cartoons can be a bit more ghoulish than some of the other cartoons that you see. His cartoons are slightly less optimistic than the cartoons that follow them in the exhibition. But I think when you think about the fact that he was the only artist involved in the campaign who had countered Nazi anti-Semitism personally and firsthand, it makes a lot of sense. So his cartoons really depict what the Nazis were doing and undertaking and sort of presenting them in this very ironic way. So you have one cartoon here that says the heel, and it shows a Nazi heel crushing a church. Looks like a church. Yes, yeah. a church. So again, an example of the ways in which Nazi destruction was not just focused on Jews, but was going to have an impact on you know, the entire world. And then tell us about these cartoons here titled Mr. Bigot. Carl Rose, who's the cartoonist behind Mr. Bigot, created this character who was, when you look at him visually, he is a very stern looking man with a pointy head, with cobwebs coming out of it. And his cartoons depict him repeatedly saying and doing offensive things. So we have a number of cartoons here in a eight cartoons presented, and this was an example of the kinds of material that was sent to various publications that they could use. But we also have a drawing, a, a line drawing, a study really for one of the Mr. Bigot cartoons, and I find this one very moving. So it shows Mr. Bigot behind a desk, talking to a Native American man who's standing in front of him. And the tagline reads, I'm sorry, Mr. Eagle Feather, but our company's policy is to employ 100% Americans only. And I think, again, this is an issue that we're continuing to grapple with. And it's a very important and pressing issue. But here we see Carl Rose presenting that to the public in the 1940s. You know, I'm noticing that these other Mr. Bigot cartoons talk about white, native-born, sixth-generation American. That phrase, there's another blue, sixth-generation American blood. What was that all about? You have to remember something about the American Jewish community at this time in the late 30s, early 40s. In 1900, more than 40% of American Jews were foreign-born. And this great influx was yet to come because from 1900 to 1924, you had 1.75 million Jews come to the U.S., largely from Eastern European countries. So if you think of that for a minute, by the time of this campaign, in the late 30s, early 40s, many American Jews are either themselves immigrants or the children of immigrants. So this issue of nativism, of dislike, of suspicion, of the foreign-born was, of course, going to be something that would be of concern to the American Jewish Committee. Depending on when one's family came to the United States, at least in my case, my parents' grandparents were all immigrants. And 
we really were raised to believe that we were tolerated guests in the United States rather than really full Americans. And so I think that the experiences of immigrants who came over during the late 19th and early 20th century, when my family came, came with a lot of scars about being Jewish in European countries. And in my case, it was Ukraine and Romania. And some of those sentiments were passed down, including to my generation and I think to my children as well in some subtle ways. So I think that's part of the sentiment behind what Mr. Bigot is doing. Some families were concerned about the number of generations back, Jewish families, uh, concerned about the number of generations back when the family originally became American. And then let's talk about this campaign for displaced persons and for civil rights. At the close of the war, you really see that there's a shift in the campaign. During the war, much of the campaign was about staying united to defeat the Axis powers. And after the war, you get a shift to issues that are going to come to the forefront that have been somewhat suppressed during the war, such as civil rights. And there'll be a tremendous amount of attention on civil rights. You also have the issue of um, displaced persons trying to get America to open its doors to be more welcoming. And um, this just reflects this shift in goals. Two of the last posters that you see in the exhibition um, speak to both of those issues. So the first one shows a little boy, a toddler, crying, and the headline says, dry his tears. Um, and basically it says, write your congressman, ask for emergency measures to admit war victims, let's welcome our fair share of displaced persons. So again, it's very prescient. This was one of the last works in the campaign that I saw, and I saw this after the pandemic started. And so the little boy actually is pictured against a background of blue and yellow colors, and it was you know, I, w I was kind of shocked immediately that this poster from 1946 is representing the colors of the flag of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So again, um, without intending to necessarily, this is a poster that was created in the 1940s but speaks to the issues that we are currently grappling as well. And then below that is, is an ad that says, do you know a rumor when you hear one? Which of course for me, uh, you know, reminds me of the misinformation, news literacy campaigns that are so needed today. I'm curious what special efforts have been made to reach school kids, the young people, who need to hear these messages and learn this history. One of the things that we're doing, uh, in addition to having teacher workshops, and we had a wonderful teacher workshop a couple of weeks ago, is that we have been awarded a grant to travel this exhibition as what we call a poster show. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to take the entire exhibition and turn it into graphic files that can be distributed free of charge, and that's the grant that we receive. We can do this free of charge, and we can distribute the exhibition as posters that can be printed out by a wide variety of institutions or organizations from classrooms in schools to uh, larger institutions, museums, community centers. We've just started working on that, but um, we're very excited that we can offer 
the exhibition as a poster show free of charge to a very, very, very wide audience. Community libraries and schools? Schools, libraries, museums, historic, small historical societies, any type of organization that doesn't have the funding to mount a larger exhibition. Well, I can't imagine better tour guides for this exhibit. Charlotte, Deborah, thank you so much for walking us through this. And I encourage everyone who's listening to come see for yourself. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to welcoming the visitors until it closes here at the New York Historical Society on January 1st. To learn more about hosting a Confronting Hate poster exhibition in your local museums and institutions, contact Traveling Exhibitions at nyhistory.org. That contact information is also in our show notes. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to check out my conversation with TikTok chef Aton Bernath on being a loud and proud Jew, from the Food Network show Chopped to the White House and everywhere in between. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.